0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them and did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush and made it to cover up Jonah, to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was happy about the bush. But when dawn came up that next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked once again that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about this bush for which you did not labor in which you did not grow. It came into being in the night and perished in a night. And should I not also be concerned with Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand, and also so many cattle. Some translations will say so many animals. Others will say so many cattle. As we begin looking at this book. There are a lot of things that come to mind when you read this text from Jonah and when you read the, te- the, the book of Jonah in its entirety. We are in the second week of our series called TLDR. Too long, didn't read. And this year we're doing one, an edition on the minor prophets. Last year we talked about the gospels and we kind of summarized the major themes of all four of the gospels. This year we're choosing four of the 12 minor prophets and they're minor not because they're not important. But because they're shorter in nature and we hope this series will encourage you to go read them. Maybe last week after worship you went and read the book of Amos. Maybe after worship today you'll go read the book of Jonah because Jonah is a bizarre story. The guy gets swallowed up by a big fish or a whale depending on who you ask. The Bible says it was a big fish. A bush is created out of nowhere and then it's eaten by a worm. And enemies actually heed the words of a political opponent. But out of all these questions we could ask, you know, all the things that we're going to ask of this text this morning, the first one I want us to ask is, what, what kind of story is this? Because the Bible is full of all sorts of literature. We've got law codes. We've got letters that Paul wrote and other people wrote. We've got the gospel stories. We've got poetry, epic Old Testament narrative. And situated almost in the middle of the Bible, we have this prophetic literature. And this prophetic literature is unique. It is an interesting group of books. And there's little that can be said about all the books at once. They're all very different from each other. But out of all of the prophets, Jonah might be the most unique, might be the most interesting. This book... um, is as much a story about an anti-prophet as an actual prophet. This book is probably the closest thing you'll find in the Bible to comedy. It's not far-fetched to suggest that Jonah's story is meant to provide a bit of satire. The author clearly has a sense of humor. But even still, this is also a book that is deeply insightful into the nature of God and the way we understand God's activity. So this morning, I would like for us to revisit one of the most peculiar prophets and together ask a few more questions like, who is Jonah and who are the Ninevites? I want us to also ask, what is exactly going on in this story? And lastly, I want us to ask, like God, but, but what about the cows? I want us to ask, well, what about the cows? All right. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. So first, let's, let's answer that question about who. Who these people are. Who are the Ninevites? Because their identity is actually a crucial detail in this story. According to the Bible, the Ninevites were a bloodthirsty, brutal people. They were prone to evil and wickedness. And if you were with us last week, you actually know a little bit about the Ninevites. Because Nineveh is a capital city. It's not a country unto its own. And it's the capital of Assyria. Last week we learned about Assyria, right? Assyria was the nation that came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. It wiped out ten tribes of Israelites. So Nineveh likely played a large role in the destruction of the Hebrew people. Scattering them from their homelands, destroying their country. So Nineveh is the enemy. They are the bad guys in the story of the Hebrew people. They're the people who last week annihilated everybody in the story. It's also important to ask, well, who's Jonah? What do we know about Jonah? Well, the truth is we know about as much about Jonah as we did Amos last week, which is very little. We know that his dad is named Amittai. We know that Jonah is Jewish because he's prophesying in the name of Nineveh. And we know that God wants him to go. To go to Nineveh and tell him about their wickedness. This is likely the same Jonah who's referenced in 2 Kings as being from Gethhepher, which is one of the northern cities close to the Sea of Galilee near where Jesus was from. But other than that, we don't know much about him. We don't know how old he is, how long he's been doing the Lord's work, how he was called into ministry. We don't know anything like that. What we have here are the enemy of the Hebrew people and this relatively unknown prophet. And even though we're not told exactly when this particular story happens, it only makes sense for this, first, for this episode of Jonah to take place after the destruction of the northern kingdom, after Amos, sometime after 757 BCE, which is the year in which the Assyrians wiped out the northern Israelites. When this story opens up today, God is instructing Jonah to do something that he does not want to do. He's telling him to go to Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has come up before God. But Jonah says, hard pass. I'm going to do something else entirely. I don't want to do that, God. Thank you for the offer. But I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what you want me to do. I'm going to go 500 miles to the southwest as opposed to heading to the northeast. He walks 500 miles. And then he gets on a boat in Joppa to head to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles across the Mediterranean Sea and across all of Europe to what we now know as modern-day Spain. And he says, I'm going to go all the way there because that's essentially, in his mind, the end of the earth. At that point, nobody had made it across the Atlantic Ocean to to, to find the North American continent. And so in his mind, he's literally fleeing the presence of God as far as humanly possible to go all the way uh, across the earth to get away from what God wants him to do. But on the way there, there's a violent storm that's kicked up in the sea and everybody in the boat begins to get scared and they start praying to their gods, except for Jonah. They noticed that he's not praying to Yahweh and they put two and two together because earlier Jonah had told them that he was fleeing God. And that's when they realized it must be Jonah that's causing this storm. We gotta do something about this. But they talked like, what should we do? How can we get this to work? How can we convince him to pray? And then Jonah instructed them This was not some hostile takeover. This is not some way in which they were exerting their power. Jonah told them, just throw me over the boat. Just throw me into the sea. And they didn't want to do it at first, but then eventually they did. And instead of drowning, the Lord provides a big fish to come up and swallow Jonah. And after three days inside of this big fish, Jonah says somewhat begrudgingly, what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord, which is Jonah's way of saying, fine, I'll go. I'm not happy about it. I don't want to do it, but I'll go. And then the fish spits him back on dry land in Joppa. Once he's back on land, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again and says, go to Nineveh. And this time he did. And Nineveh is a really big city. The Bible says that it takes three days to walk across all of Nineveh. And while he's doing this, over those three days, he's telling the people to repent because the Lord is unhappy with their wickedness. He tells them they have 40 days before the Lord overthrows this city. And you know what's crazy about this story? The people believed him. I mean, here's this doomsday prophet who's not from there that nobody knows telling them everything you do is wrong. Repent. The Lord wants to destroy you. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody on the street corner yelling at you that the end of the world is near? To not go to that rock concert, to, to change your ways. Did you ever take them seriously? Because that's essentially who Jonah is. He's that dude standing on the corner yelling at you. The world is going to end unless you repent. And the people believe him. Even the king believed Jonah. He removed his royal clothes. He put sackcloth on himself. He covered himself in ashes. And the king declared that no woman, man, or animal shall eat or drink anything. He said that we shall turn from the violence and our evil ways that are in our hands. And that's where we arrive at today's text. That's, that's the, what got us to the part of the story we just read. We read the very end of the book, the last chapter. When God saw the people repented, The Bible says that God's mind was changed, which is pretty powerful if you think about it. And we're going to come back to that, but just keep that in the back of your mind. The Bible says that God changed his mind. God saw how they turned from their evil ways and decided not to bring calamity upon them. When God offers the Ninevites mercy, Jonah is furious and he walks off in a huff and he says to the Lord, this is the whole reason I didn't want to come here. This is exactly what he says. He says, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. Let's just pause and think about that for a second. Isn't this bizarre behavior? Jonah is mad that what he did worked. He is upset that the Ninevites are being saved. Jonah is mad at God for offering grace and peace and forgiveness. He says in verse 3, And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. You know, I have a three-year-old, and I have a one-year-old. And I have become an expert on recognizing temper tantrums. They are abundant in our house as we are entered into the stage of threes. And when I read this book, my friends, what I hear is the textbook example of petulant child temper tantrum. Just being upset for no reason, being upset about something that doesn't make sense and there's no consoling. Jonah's just throwing a temper tantrum. The prophet of God who's sent there to save the Ninevites is upset and throwing a fit because God is merciful. But God sees just how ridiculous Jonah is being. And he says, why are you angry? He said, is it right for you to be angry? And so Jonah goes off and pouts, and while he's sulking, the Lord provides this bush, which brings him shade and makes Jonah happy. And the next morning, God sends a worm to eat the bush. And then Jonah throws another tantrum all over again. And God says, do you have any right to be angry about the bush? It wasn't there before. You didn't do anything to bring it about. Why are you mad? And God concludes by saying, but Nineveh, Nineveh has more than a 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, their right hand from their left. That wasn't intentional. That was actually an accident. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? He says, which is kind of funny, right? God is, says to, is saying to Jonah, I've got to take care of the people that, that aren't the brightest. I've got to take care of these people who don't know what's best for them. And then he says, and, and what about the cows? Shouldn't I care about the cows too? depends on the translation. Some just say animals, some say cattle, but I can just imagine God saying, hey, Jonah, shouldn't I at least even care about the cows? Which brings me to our main question this morning. What can we all take from this story? You know, we, we had such a good response from last week's sermon about the acronym and using Amos to help us remember more about his books. We decided we would employ the same mnemonic device this week to help us hold on to some of the truths of this book. But Jonah is just kind of one too many letters. And his letters don't really make for a really good acronym in the same way that Amos did. So we just decided we'd use a different word. And so if you want to remember Jonah, I want you to ask the same question God asks. Well, what about the cows? Let's let cows be our acronym this week. Might sound silly, I know, but it's helpful and it's easy to remember. The C in cows, as we think about what the book Jonah means, stands for change. This is a book all about change. Change is such a major theme in the book of Jonah. And to be sure, when we talk about change, it's helpful to know that in this Hebrew translation, the word change is actually the same word that shows up for repent. So the word change could equally be replaced with repent to turn around, to turn away from. The Ninevites change. They repent. They turn away from their misguided actions, and they turn instead towards God. They repent of their wrongdoings, and they accept God's mercy. They change. And also in this book, God changes, which is a really big claim. I mean, right? We always talk about God as the alpha and the omega, you know, the beginning and the end. He's constant and all these things. But here in Jonah, the word actually says that God changes his mind. And the word for the change is still repent. God repents, consider that. God decided to do something different. He turns away from what he was gonna do and decides again to do something else. Doesn't that blow your mind? God, the God, repents and changes his mind. In fact, the only character in this whole story that doesn't change is Jonah. I mean, he he does reluctantly decide to go to Nineveh, but he doesn't really change. He didn't want to go, and by the end of it, he's not happy he went. He only goes because he got swallowed up by a big fish. (laughs) He doesn't want the people to repent, he doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. Jonah might be playing the part of a prophet, but he hasn't really changed any of his opinions or desires from the ones that are selfish. And this morning, I wonder, are are we more like Jonah or are we like the Ninevites and like God, trying to be more like God? Are we a people who are willing to be changed, who are open to change, or have we made up our minds for good? To be honest, I think most of us would be okay if nothing ever changed again, right? There's been so much change lately and we're all real apprehensive about all these things changing all the time. We don't really like it. Change is a general thing. just seems to be something we're not okay with. You know, maybe you find yourself at a stage in life where your family is settled or maybe you have a stable career or maybe you've lived here so long that you can't ever imagine moving. And so the idea of change is met with resistance for those reasons. Maybe, you know, I think many of us are at a stage in life where early in life, change is normal. You go from being a kid to going to high school and college, and then you get a job, and these things change, you get married, you have kids, all these different things. But once you get to a certain stage, you're just kind of good with things being the way they are, which is why it's no wonder that we never want to change our opinions. We never want to change what we think is right or wrong. We are all quick to resist anyone that tries to persuade us that our opinion might be less than ideal that there might be something else we haven't thought about. Or if somebody tries to convince us that our decisions aren't what's actually best for us. We are easy to become stuck in our ways, stuck in our opinions, stuck in our bubbles, so that when someone disagrees with us, our first instinct is that they need to change, not us. We can't be wrong. Perhaps, perhaps though, you are more open to the possibility that some things should change. Maybe you have received that, at least, you know, that there are some things that you can take stock of and and be open to. But, But be honest with me. Do you actually think anybody can change? Like, do you think people will change? Like, including yourself, do you think you can change? I think most of us are at one of those two levels. We're either not open to the possibility at all that something about us needs to change, or we don't think anybody else can actually change. And when you decide that others can't change, you're not just selling them short. You're giving yourself an excuse for you not to change. So I ask you again, are you able to look at your own life, your own opinions, your own theology, your own conceptions of human behavior and say, am I open to the possibility that I might be wrong? Jonah was not. He didn't. He didn't think. He didn't want God to do what God did. Which brings me to our next letter, as we remember the cows. The O, the O in this word in this acronym stands for obedience. This is a book about obedience. Jonah gets a lot of credit for being obedient, but he wasn't really. Not at first. Eventually, he does. But it's actually funny how bad he ends up looking by the end of this book that has his name. Everyone in this story is more obedient than Jonah. The enemies of Israel are more obedient to God than Jonah. When they hear the word of the Lord, they repent. They turn around. The fish is more obedient than Jonah. The bush is more obedient than Jonah. The worm is more obedient than Jonah. They actually do what God commands them to do. Jonah does not. How much easier would it have been for Jonah's life if he had just done from the beginning what he knew he should do? I mean, he could have saved himself a 1,000 mile round trip on foot. How many of you have added 1,000 extra miles to your trip? 1,000 extra miles to your journey running away from something that you know you ought to do, trying to avoid something because it's hard, not wanting to listen to somebody because it's scary. How many of you have been fearful about being obedient? Because you just didn't want to do it. Maybe it's about your faith. Maybe it's not answering the calling God's placing on you. That's how a lot of the calling stories go, that people are apprehensive about what God's saying. But maybe it's just about the decisions you make in your life. We all make, right? Maybe you've made a mistake at work with your relationship and you don't want to own up to it. And so you go in all these directions as opposed to just admitting that you've been wrong, that you've done something wrong. Maybe it's just a simple procrastination that keeps putting things off that you should get done. You know you should do it. But obedience is just tough. And so you're like, I'm going to go down to Joppa. I'm going to hop on a boat and I'm going to avoid this all altogether. You know, I pray that if that's you, I, I pray that if there is a time in which in your life you, you are not feeling as obedient as you should, I hope a big fish eats you. I hope something grand happens in your life that forces you to turn around. I hope God gets your attention and shakes you and makes you realize that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. That you're going somewhere you shouldn't be going. That you're acting a way you shouldn't be acting. I pray something stellar gets us gets our attention whenever we fail to be obedient. But my bigger prayer is that you won't have to. That you won't have to be shaken up. Is that we'll just do what is right from the beginning because we know we should do it even when it's hard. Even when it's scary. Even if it's not something we're sure we should do because it goes against maybe what somebody has taught. If we know it's right, if we know God's calling us to it, if we trust that the Lord is there, how much easier would it be for us to be obedient from the beginning? But even if there are times in your life where you're not yet ready to change or you don't believe that you should, or even if your obedience is not yet on point, there is another word in this book that offers us a great deal of hope. In fact, the W in our word to remember for cows is actually two words. And it's this. is that no matter what is going on, God is offering wide mercy. This book is a book of wide mercy. I mean, think about it. Ninevite is an evil city full of wickedness. They are the city that wiped out a vast number of Hebrew people. And God not only sends somebody to tell them that they're wrong, but that invites them to repent so they can be forgiven. The people that are the literal enemy of God's people, God wants to save. God gives mercy, wide mercy, to even the people who we think should be last on the list to get it. What's even more crazy is we read about how God responds to Nineveh in, in, as, in reflection of how we read Amos last week, right? Remember in Amos, there's like no hope. God destroys, the, lets the people be destroyed because of their wickedness. But this week we see an entirely different response. Amos shows God offering no mercy, but Jonah shows that God's mercy is boundless, that it is wide, that it's even for the wicked enemy of the Israelites. God says to Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned? Shouldn't I be concerned about the people who don't know their left from their right? What about the cows? I I should care about the things that people don't even think about. God's response to the Ninevites is surprising and it's borderline offensive to the Hebrew people. It's offensive to Jonah which is why he didn't want to go. But God wants to save those that we don't even think need it or are worthy or should get it. And it's not just the Ninevites who receive God's mercy. Jonah does too. I mean, think about it. Jonah is the least obedient person in the story, yet he still receives God's mercy. After seeing God's mercy on full display, he just goes off and pouts, but God never once abandons Jonah. When Jonah decided he was going to refuse his calling and runs away, God didn't say, fine, I'll pick somebody else. When he got on a boat and decided to flee, he didn't say, fine, get as far from my presence as you can get, Jonah. No, he he sends a big old fish to eat him. And when Jonah was confused and upset with God's decisions, he says, you just don't get it, so I'm not even going to bother. The whole time. Despite Jonah's imperfections, his reluctance, his flaws, God never abandons him. Never. In fact, God never abandons anybody in this story. God offers wide mercy. Which brings us to our last word this morning it's the S in the acronym CALS. And this last point is pretty heinous. It's so heinous, in fact, that we don't have a word in English that I feel like fully encompasses this feeling. that is on full display in this text. So we're borrowing a word from the German language for our S this morning. And it's schadenfreude. Have you heard that word before? We could practice it, but you're wearing your mask, and so I won't hear you, and you got the guttural sounds, and you're supposed to keep the Schadenfreude. You know what that is? It's the enjoyment obtained from the troubles of others. It's when you're happy that something bad has happened to somebody else. And now, I don't think that this is something that we're all necessarily conscious of. I don't think that there are many people in this room, if anybody, who's going out of here today to try to figure out to harm somebody else so that they can get joy from it. If so, that's a different level entirely. I'm talking about kind of the subconsciousness, the things within ourselves that we might not even recognize like, if this seems a little intense or a little extreme, it is, but I think it's still very true. It's a terrible emotion that no Christian should feel, but I think we all feel it at points. Jonah truly feels it. He's hoping the Ninevites, <clears throat> he's hoping they'll refuse God's mercy. He's hoping that something bad will happen to them. He wants them to be destroyed. That will bring him joy. Jonah didn't want it to be forgiven. He would have taken joy in their destruction. He might not have admitted it publicly. But just from the words in this book, we know that he didn't want them to be happy. He thought that they should get what they deserved. What they deserved. That, my friends, is Schattenfreude. When people, when the people we think should have something bad happen to them, and then something bad actually happens to them, and then we feel good about it, that is Schattenfreude. And man, I got to be honest, I have have felt this emotion before. I can relate to Jonah. I'm ashamed to admit that. I'm not proud of it. I'm not saying up here, like, let's all be like me and hope bad things happen to good people or other people. But think about it. Like, here's a silly example. I'm a big Braves fan. If the Braves were to lose in the playoffs to the Mets, I'd be very upset about it. But you know what would bring me joy? is if the Mets lost the next team they played. I wouldn't care if the other team won, but I'd be real happy if the Mets fans also experienced that sorrow too. You know, we can all relate to that a little bit. But a more serious example is like this. I know I'm a pastor and I try to root for everybody in the ministry. But there are times where my humanity comes out and there might be a church down the street or in another city or some other person in ministry who... who might have different theology than me. Or maybe they have a ministry practice that's different than mine, that threatens mine. Or maybe they're successful at the same thing I try to do, but it doesn't work. And if they ever have a little bump in the road, I can't help it. But there have been times where I felt a slight tinge of satisfaction from their misstep. I'm not proud of that. I know it's not right. We shouldn't feel that way, but I'm just being honest with you. Because I think we've all had this sinful emotion. Whether it's a colleague at work Maybe they didn't get the promotion they wanted and you just can't help feel a little bit happy for them. Maybe it's somebody in your society, in your group, in your club or whatever. that they, they get knocked down on a pedestal and it just makes you feel a little bit better. That's shocking, Florida. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of being like Jonah because we want to be validated. We want to be right. We don't want to change. And so we can't help but take joy When our opponents get what they deserve, what we think they deserve. But i got to end it right here. i got to ask you this. What would happen if any of us got what we deserve? I know there's some great people in here, and some of you are probably going to be up the the ladder of receiving spiritual gifts. If they were given out based on what we deserve, you'd be above me. I know that. But there's not one person in this room who is not guilty of sin. There's not one person in here who has not failed and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, what would have happened if the Ninevites had gotten what they deserved? They'd have wiped off the planet. If Jonah had gotten what he deserved, he probably would have traveled through the digestive tract of that big fish. How many of us, if we were to stand at the pearly gates and we just told God, just give me what I deserve. How many of us would get to go in? Thank God for wide mercy. Because this morning, when I look at this book, this book of Jonah, the thing I hope you will remember above all else is that God's mercy is wide. God's grace is enough to cover your biggest failures, God's grace is enough to forgive you for the thing that you think is unforgivable. And God's grace is not just for the person sitting next to you or the person who goes to church every Sunday or the person who you think is better. God's grace is for the Ninevites and it's for Jonah. It's for our enemies and it's for us. God's mercy. God wants everyone to be saved. If Jonah shows us anything, it shows us that God loves everybody and wants to offer mercy to everybody. So may we be a people who not only accept the mercy that is offered to us, but that we proclaim it for the world and that we don't take joy in other people's missteps. We don't judge people for thinking differently than we do or assume that they can't be right because we have to be, but that we hope for them and their sake that they experience God's mercy too. If we end up living a little bit too much like Jonah, I pray that by the end of things, we will at least try a little more to remember the cows, to at least remember those that nobody else will think about so that we can be the people who tell about this God who has wide mercy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.